Hi, I'm Ella Frasnich and welcome to the Unequal Truths podcast, where we hear from successful professionals currently working in the market research industry who, like me, entered from low-income backgrounds. Listen in as guests share their personal journeys in market research and we explore what we can all learn from their experiences to help our industry become more inclusive. do a bit of an introduction for the listeners based on on some information that you sent me so you've worked in market research for 17 years and you've worked for a brand a market research agency and most recently a panel technology company and you are British by birth but you moved to the US in 2011 and have been there ever since I believe is that right yep that's correct yeah, and now you are Senior Vice President of Sales and Customer Success for the Americas at Synth. So, wow, what a journey. Yeah, it really has been. Yeah, it sounds like it. I'm fascinated to, to hear more over the course of this conversation. Before we do, though, I'm starting every interview off with a just quick fire round of random questions. So uh, just first, first uh, answers that come to mind, uh, if that's OK. OK. What is your favourite colour? Blue. Star sign? Gemini. Favourite animal? Dog. Favourite food? Sushi. Who would you want to play you in a movie of your life? Oh, um, Emily Blunt. And what superpower would you like? I'd love to travel to the future. Ah, interesting. We have not had that one yet. <laughs> cool. So yeah, it'd be great just to hear from you, Katie, about sort of how you would describe your background and particularly kind of what about your background made you perhaps feel different to others in the industry when you when you entered? Yeah, so I grew up in in Plymouth, England in the 1980s, so in the Thatcher years, and uh, my parents had both left school at 16 um, and they had their first child at, at 19, so pretty young when they started their family. My dad was in the Navy. So we actually lived in naval housing um, to begin with, and then moved into a council house um, on a fairly large council estate in Plymouth, and that's uh, government housing for my American colleagues. (laughs) So I attended the local primary school um, kind of that was on the council estate, and then went to the local comprehensive school as well. And uh, I actually had a lot of siblings. So I had three siblings, including a brother who has cerebral palsy. So um, I kind of grew up in an environment where there were, um, you know, already kind of already diversity within my family. And although my parents had left school at 16, they both really instilled in me that education was really, really important. I had to get straight A's. I had to to prove myself. Um, And I really started to see it as kind of like my way out, for want of a better phrase. So my school itself obviously left a lot to be desired uh, in a city school, a lot of children from you know similar families to mine, very low income. And although the teachers did their best, I really got the impression they were just trying to survive the day <laughs> with a, a bunch of wild kind of misbehaving students. Also, you know, a lot of hand-me-downs of clothes for my sister. But I honestly look back and, and really think that it, it shaped who I am today. And I'm super grateful for government housing, putting a roof over um, my family's head. Obviously, I had to work really hard to go to university. And I was one of, I think, about six um, in my uh, secondary school that, that went to university and I was really lucky that I went in 1998 so it was still free um, back in those days and uh, they did introduce fees whilst I was at university so thank you Tony Blair but it was means tested so I was still able to attend for free which was great um, and I'll always be grateful for the opportunity of a, of a free education as well. Mm. Do you think that um, you would have gone to university had it been today? 
I don't know. And I actually, I had to, I had to live at home for the first two years of university because I really couldn't afford to to move out into halls of residence. So I stayed at home and I also worked two part-time jobs in a clothing store at weekends and also in a bar in the evenings. So it kind of helped me make ends meet. And I was able to move out in my final year of university and, and live that kind of student life with friends. But I always felt a little different because a lot of my friends were studying at weekends and evenings where I had to go to work and I had to, to, kind of juggle work life university life and still going out and having fun and uh, kind of making all the men's ends meet as it were and tell me then about um, entering the the market research industry and how that felt yeah so when I first moved to um, London I uh, lived above a chicken kebab shop which <laughs> was great in King's Cross which at the time so 2003 was not not necessarily a great place to, to live and I, I used to walk to work it's about a 45 minute walk down to Barbican to, to walk to work so I already felt a little bit different a lot of my work colleagues lived in much nicer flats uh, in much nicer parts of London um, and so on and what I noticed were that a lot of them talked about the schools they went to the high school they went to the kind of study abroads that they did and the the internships they, they had done and I really couldn't afford to do an internship I, I needed to, to pay rent and so on I also had a Devon accent at the time so uh, I was a little bit um you know kind of not ash- I guess a little bit ashamed of my accent I guess and that they all sounded much more eloquent than I did much more worldly than I did and I felt a little bit like the, the Devonshire country bumpkin and I remember my first day at work, the, uh, they took me for a kind of a welcome lunch and they took me to a sushi restaurant. And I, at the time, had no idea what sushi was. I didn't know what the menu said. I've never used chopsticks in my life. And uh, I just remember thinking, oh, my goodness, this is London. I've got a lot of learning <laughs> to do. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so, and so that was market. Did you go straight into market research? Tell me a bit about like leaving university to get a job and, and what that journey was like for you. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I uh, I think I always assumed, um, and this was you know kind of how I was raised. I was raised to leave university, get a job. Doesn't matter what job it is, get an office job, try and work your way up, get a pension, be a good employee. So uh, I uh, I started working actually in Exeter originally um, at a food and drink company, and that was that was a really great stepping stone. I lived in a really big shared house with like six other uh, people, so it felt like being a student still. And it was, we were having a lot of meetings in London to go and see the retailers. Um, I remember kind of my first meeting at Sainsbury's, I had to go and buy a suit and I had no idea what to wear or no idea how to style my hair. And uh, I was super, super nervous. And I noticed that my colleagues weren't necessarily nervous and uh, and kind of they felt in place, whereas I really felt out of place. And it was kind of like you know, London felt so huge. I didn't know how the tube worked and um yeah, I'd never visited London before until that first um, company meeting that I had to attend. Wow, yeah, so massive culture shock. Yeah, for sure. And so so when Mintel, I worked for, for Mintel after that, and when Mintel offered me a role in London, I suddenly thought, you know, I should really take the bull by the horns and uh, and move. And I'd grown up, you know, by the coastline in England and all my surfer friends were kind of like, oh, you're moving to the big city. You're going to be a big city hotshot person. (laughs) And uh, and we're kind of really upset I was leaving. And yeah, my goodness, London was a was a whole different ballgame for me. Yeah, I can imagine. So tell tell me a bit about joining Mintel and what role you came in at and 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 maybe some key kind of steps to to where you are today really. And and I suppose within that, I'm really interested to hear about what's kind of helped or hindered you along 
along the way and and how your background or if you see your background sort of playing a part in in those things yeah definitely so when I first started working at Mintel I was actually on the research team so I'd studied psychology at university and that basically gave me the skill set of uh, survey design and, and SPSS and analysis and so on so I started in the research team and I think I was fairly quiet I was a little bit shy. Again, I had an accent that I didn't necessarily want everybody to hear. So um, I, I just kind of kept myself to myself. And um, really what the game changer for me was um, one of the sales leaders kind of recognized that because I had been client side and had used Mintel as a client that I could be you know, pretty good in sales. So he he suggested that I apply for a sales role. Um, and initially I was kind of taken aback and shocked and, and was kind of like, I can't do that. And all the sales guys at, at Mintel and girls were you know they all had their pinstripe suits and they all drove their Audi A3s and I was like well that's I can't be that I'm not that and I was super nervous but he gave me a chance I, I got the job and uh, moved into sales and, and realized it's less about the pinstripe suits and, and the accent it's really about listening and understanding your your clients needs um, and and then matching that with the product that you might have to sell. And I think what sales really did for me also is it just gave me that confidence. I just had to get on the phone with clients and hundreds of clients a day. And I, I had to go and see companies you know, and just practice, basically. I had to do you know, hundreds of meetings. And over time, I um, was kind of able to, to, to emulate my client, my, um, co- my colleagues' kind of articulation and, uh, and elocution and, uh, and grew in confidence, really. Mm, yeah, interesting. And so were, were all of your peers sort of from a sort of less diverse background or did you encounter anyone like you when you when you kind of joined? Or Yeah, not really. A lot of my um, a lot of my peers had gone to private school. Um, they had gone to fairly prestigious universities like Warwick and, uh, and Cambridge um, and so on. I'd gone to kind of Plymouth University, which had been known as Plymouth Polytechnic until a couple of years before I went. And so, yeah, I definitely I felt quite different. And they often on vacation would say, oh, I'm going to my parents' ski house in Italy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Or we're going down to parents' house in the south of France. And uh, I was going like, I'm going back to Dev- Devon for Christmas. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, definitely felt a little bit different. And they, they'd always make fun of me for having six fingers, which is obviously, you know, a Devon joke uh, about where I grew up. I actually grew up in a city so I don't think they realized that that I was from a city they all to be fair a lot of them did try and take care of me they were they were nervous for me about living in the big city and about living in King's Cross so um they all kind of rallied around um to take care of me and and uh, to invite me out and I remember one of the girls saying to all of her friends she's like we've got to be friends with Katie because she's so new we've got to take care of her it was nice that sounds really nice I wonder if you could maybe talk to me about whether or not that difference between you and your peers made a difference in your career trajectory or, you know, you've talked about your confidence building and and articulation a little bit, but are there any other sort of tangible examples you could give about maybe what you had to do in order to be successful in comparison to those around you and whether there were any differences at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently, actually. I think I really grew up, and this is, you know, through no fault of my parents um, at all, but they had left school at 16. Everybody around me that I grew up with, their parents had left school at 16 and and had fairly, I guess, blue collar jobs. And so I just didn't know what a career looked like. I hadn't, I didn't have a plan for myself. They didn't have a plan for me. I. It was almost like I was raised not to be ambitious, if that makes sense. I didn't know you could be ambitious. I didn't know you could carve 
fantastic career paths for yourself. I, I uh, last summer I was um, at a concert of a 90s band Bush and uh, it reminded me of, of living at home um, when I was about 16, listening to that same band. And I, I looked back and I thought, my goodness, when I was 16, I just thought I'd probably stay in Plymouth and, and just get a job in an office and that would be it. And now I'm here in New York City with this amazing career and and pop- property that I have purchased myself. And I was just kind of overwhelmed with emotion that I just had no idea that it was even allowed or that it, that, that was open to me. I think a lot of my peers around me had a lot of career advice from their parents, from their friends' parents, from their, their private schools that really kind of taught them, you can be super ambitious. Here's how you carve a career to become an SVP. Whereas I just had no idea it was open to me. Mm, yeah, um, I didn't really even know that the market research industry existed until after I graduated and, and then went to a careers advisor and they said, oh, what do you like doing? I like speaking to people. Oh, market research might be something. I was like, oh, OK. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I can certainly relate to to uh, that in certain ways. And so how easy or difficult would you say it's been for you to kind of to navigate the industry? Yeah, I would say I have always I've always worked for amazing managers. So I've been very lucky that I've had managers that have kind of mentored me and worked with me. But I didn't um, I didn't really seek out like a career mentor. And so I had nobody really to navigate me other than the my immediate managers. And again, I, I was probably too shy or too nervous to really speak to managers of other departments or to ask for the CEO's time for maybe 20 minutes. And again, looking back, I I recognise a lot of my colleagues did do that. A colleague of mine recently said that she uh, she found somebody on LinkedIn when she was younger and just kind of messaged them and said, I really love your career trajectory. I'd love to have a coffee with you. And they met her for coffee. And again, I just don't think I had the confidence to do that. I just thought, well, they wouldn't want to speak to little old me. So I kind of feel, I feel like I had to find my way in the dark a little bit. And it's been, um, again, I'm still kind of finding each day. I always think to myself, well, I can't make it to the next level. Or, you know, I, I'm an account director. I'll never make it to VP. The, I was promoted to VP. Well, I'm a VP. I'll never make it to SVP. And even now, I still have a lot of doubts um, about taking it to the next level to become a CEO or a CRO. I, I still have a lot of doubts around if that's the right next step for me um, or not. So, again, I think it's still it's still about the confidence. And it's, it's still mm. that I, I struggle to look around me at my peers I grew up with to see how they have progressed and I, I don't have very many you know, examples to point to, unfortunately. Yeah, that's fascinating about the confidence. And it's something that you're not the first person I've heard sort of say that. And, and certainly on this podcast, it's not the first time it's been, been said. What's helped in that regard? Because presumably you've managed to you know, find that you, you've reached already you know, a very senior level. What, what's helped along the way with that, would you say? I would definitely say, I think, you know, my... My upbringing, and particularly my school, being you know in an inner city school with very large class sizes and a lot of behavioural issues in those class sizes, I really had to get my head down and try and avoid the noise. So I'm just going to have to push through and, and work through all of this. And the same at university, I had to you know balance two jobs and uh, and studying and, and attending university. So I think it really helped me to kind of focus and hone in and and get my head down and just get on with the job and uh, and work super hard through all of the noise. Particularly as it comes to market research, though, I think I grew up in one 
I guess, demographic. I was able to move into, a, a, I guess, a different demographic and, and see people for, from all walks of life. And that's really led me to, to be a good market researcher, I think, in that I, you know, I know the food that I grew up eating. I know the foods and the brands that uh, we moved into. And I, I, I kind of I know what it's like for families who are trying to balance budgets. And I know what it's like for families who don't have to think about budgets when it comes to food shopping. So when I'm thinking about market research and whether it's a focus group or a survey design, I've kind of had a broad spectrum in mind. And I'm sure we can come on to this topic, but I think the market research industry kind of suffers a little bit from being quite homogenized in, in the people who are designing the methodology. And I think it leads the industry to, to ignore a lot of demographics, to be honest. Absolutely. I completely agree. And actually, that's the main reason I'm, I'm kind of doing this podcast in some ways. I feel like, I mean, I mean I'm a qual uh, researcher, but, you know, um, seeing just a lack of understanding or even thinking, you know, so I think often it can be sort of unconscious, but when homogenized groups are designing research, conducting research, analyzing research and reporting on research, you know, I think actually, unless there's different voices in the room, a lot can be interpreted or presented in in the wrong way and opportunities are missed. So I'm, I'm really glad you brought up that point. And I wonder if you could maybe elaborate a little bit or give any examples of where maybe you've seen that or experienced that happen. Absolutely. It happens all day, every day. I, uh, I see hundreds of thousands of surveys <clears throat> on a yearly basis. And it really, it, it hurts itself in the sampling on so many levels. I see the surveys designed and the, the quotas set on a survey designed. I, I remember really clearly... A client was looking, there are a fairly high-end beauty brands looking at um, the, the users of a particularly high-end nail polish. And they said, well, uh, we only want females aged 25 and above and only household incomes of 50,000 and above. And I said, why? And they said, because that's the people using our product. I'm like, I'm definitely sure it's not because when I was growing up, we would all forego lunch and save up our lunch money for a month to buy that same nail polish brand. And it, it was almost like they just assumed it was only people at 50k and above that bought their products and services. And so they weren't even going to survey those people to begin with. So we're missing it in the survey design. We're missing it in the way the questions are asked and phrased sometimes. I've seen plenty of packaging studies and we don't set quotas at all for disabled people. And again, growing up with a brother with the cerebral palsy, I saw him struggle with packaging design throughout his whole life. And yet we never survey people with disabilities and understand how they can you know, open a jar uh, or, or when we're doing packaging tests, really understanding the implications of that. Or when we're doing claims testing, we don't necessarily look at different uh, different groups, different ethnicities, different religious groups uh, who have maybe different dietary requirements. And we just don't look at that when we're putting claims tests and ingredient testing um, together. I think really, though, the, the issue comes down to the market research industry doesn't necessarily attract people from all backgrounds. I personally think it's a super fun and innovative industry, but we really miss people of different religious backgrounds, people of different ethnic backgrounds, people with disabilities. They're just not finding their way into careers in market research. So whenever I have uh, jobs available and, and we go to recruiters, I just don't see those types of resumes. I only really see one kind of homogenized group of resumes coming through. Any thoughts about why you think that might be? I think in part, it's like you said, it nobody's raised thinking I want a career in market research. <laughs> um, so I think it's a it's an industry that not many people know about already. But I, I've started to think about this a lot more recently, especially now that we're working from home so much. I I really think I used to travel a lot for focus groups or I used to travel a lot to see clients. And, and now I think we really can hire 
people with disabilities into the industry very easily because everybody can work from home now. We can conduct focus groups from home. It's We really need to start seeking out um, or maybe writing our job descriptions or, or discussing our companies and our industry in a different way. And I, I for one, I'm, I'm certainly kind of wanting to speak to maybe universities and really understanding their, their student bases and how how what kind of careers they look for for themselves and and uh, and how we can better talk about our industry uh, to attract a more diverse uh, employee type yeah and I think that's really important um, moving forward into the future I want to backtrack just slightly so you were talking about you know some great examples of surveys where things are just being missed and you've sort of challenged clients on that and I, again I've heard this a little bit from from other people too I just wondered are you the only person in the room to tend to notice those things yeah sometimes yeah so for example that uh, high-end nail polish I think I was the only person in the room to say I think you'll find actually a lot of uh, lower income people save up a lot of money to buy that nail polish they are using that brand or they're using it differently to the way you think they're using it I remember doing a lot of cheese research back when I worked at the the food and drink company around pretty high-end Italian cheeses like mascarpone and ricotta and the assumption was that people were using it in recipes the way that the Italians are kind of designed those products to be used and I said well we just used to put mascarpone on toast <laughs> and, uh, when we were growing up and um, and they were kind of all shocked again the assumption was that potentially lower income families were buying mascarpone or ricotta and and the assumption was that they use it in recipes the way it was designed to and so yes I'm often pointing out the um, the the obvious I, well, what feels the obvious to me I'm often to set ethnicity quotas too especially in the USA I'm like did you want to set an ethnicity quota to make sure you don't just have a thousand white people filling in this survey and uh, and they forget to sometimes set ethnicity quotas yeah um it's interesting isn't it and I mean I think the reason I wanted you to sort of just spell that out <laughs> I suppose um in that you're probably the only person raising that is I just think it's so it just demonstrates so tangibly doesn't it what difference it makes just having somebody in the room that's just not thinking in exactly the same way as everybody else yeah absolutely or even the wording of a question is sometimes so eloquent eloquently written question I'm kind of like let's just take it back to basics because I know that my mum wouldn't and again no disrespect my mum whatsoever but she wouldn't be able to understand that question you just just need to ask it in a little bit more of a a level that people are going to understand yeah absolutely and so what about just thinking about the industry in general terms, would you say you, you're, you've you been able to sort of join and really actively be in the industry w- with a voice? Yes, um, I think the industry is, is getting better in that it now has, I mean, I remember joining the research club back in, in the UK, but it was kind of more, let's just have a pint at the pub and uh, have a chat about market research, um, which was great. It led to a lot of networking. And so you could understand what was happening in the industry outside of just your uh, your own company. Um, and I think in recent years, there's been obviously a rise in a number of, um, kind of industry bodies who are really trying to, to have a voice. So women in research um, is absolutely fantastic. The events are awesome. The speakers are awesome. The webinars are awesome. And I um, I actually was uh, conducted one of the webinars last month on, on careers in market research, actually, which was great that I was, I was given the opportunity to do that. I also belong to the SampleCon board. So it is uh, an industry body that specifically focuses on sample. And uh, we raise these topics a lot to try and move our industry forward. And again, I'm, I'm given, I was given the opportunity and I'm given the voice there. Again, I do sometimes think it maybe I got there slower because I didn't actively reach out again the confidence thing I didn't actively reach out to ask to join I kind of waited for them to ask and then I was still kind of 
I guess, shocked and um, and flattered that I was even asked in the first place to join some of these uh, industry boards. And uh, and Kristen Luck, who who manages uh, women in research, is absolutely fantastic. I was kind of talking to her recently about, um, you know, there are certain people in the industry that I really look up to. And she said, well, just give them a call. And again, I kind of thought to myself, well, surely I can't give them a call. Lowly old me. And um, she said to me, don't be ridiculous. You've got to give them a call. This is your career. And uh, so she's been a real, you know, a great advocate. So I think we're getting there. It sometimes feels a little bit like an echo chamber um, and a bubble sometimes, but I think we all recognize that. And uh, at least we're having the conversation and trying to uh, to move the narrative forward that maybe we've got some issues in sampling altogether um, around reaching diverse audiences. And how do we build those diverse audiences in the sample world? How do we attract more more people of different backgrounds into our industry? And so just overall, would you say that your backgrounds like had had an impact on your career trajectory, either in a positive or negative way? I think it helped um, in that, again, I, I can see things from a lot of different perspectives, which is often therefore why people, you know, my managers or my peers will often come to me to kind of ask for a different different opinion or the voice of reason. My current manager is fantastic and that he will always kind of call me and say, I just want your perspective which, again, I think I, I add that value to, to a company. Um, and again, I just had to kind of get on with the job despite the noise around me and despite multitasking <laughs> um, at university and so on. Where it's hindered me, again, I kind of, in a way, waited for people to say, you should apply for this job or waited for people to say, we'd like you to join the sample con board instead of pushing myself forward for those things. So I do wonder what I could have been or, or where I could have gotten to had I had that confidence much earlier, had I had people growing up who kind of gave me permission to be ambitious and allowed me to, to really push myself forward. But I'm super happy with where I am. I'm very, very grateful for, for everything I have. So I, I try not to think about that too much, if that makes sense. Yeah, that all, that all makes a lot of sense. I just wondered if there's anything that you still ever kind of, or well have in the past and to this day, you know, ever avoid doing, being or saying in order to kind of be accepted and or respected within the industry? Yeah, I think I used to hide my accent. It's changed over the years. And it's really interesting moving to the USA where everybody loves a British accent. But <laughs> yeah, and they all think it sounds super posh. But I know that for England standards, it's not at all <laughs> a posh accent. So that's really funny. I think I probably yeah shied away from public speaking earlier on in my career until I kind of works through my accent and now I feel really bad saying it because actually the Plymouth accent is beautiful but yeah I definitely shied away I definitely shied away from telling people that I grew up in a council estate and it's not that I was ashamed but it, I knew it was different so I just didn't want them to view me differently and again that accent in the USA people I mean absolutely just assume that I came from a you know a middle-income family or a high-income family who kind of pushed me in my career and sometimes they ask kind of you know what do you oh what do your parents do and um and I'm not embarrassed to say, um, but it, I think they're always kind of taken aback a little bit that you know my dad was in the Navy and still works in the naval base and my mum was a nurse. And and yeah, I think it, 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 they sometimes will view me a little bit differently. And I guess I didn't want that when I was younger. Now I'm now I'm much more kind of open to saying, yep, this is where I came from and this is what I've done. And I've, I was again, I look back and I even the comparison of England to the US, I look back and think I'm so happy for the free education and I'm, and the unit free university education. And I'm so grateful for the government housing that put a roof over my head and so on as well. Yeah. And I was going to ask you about just uh, the difference. You've been in the US, what, nearly a decade. And I just wondered if you 
if there was a sort of tangible difference between your experiences uh, working in the UK versus the US? There is, yeah, there's a lot There's a lot of differences, specifically as it comes to my kind of lower income background. I think the US is built on a lot of people who you know, were kind of uh, self-made men or self-made women. And, you know, it's there's less of a class system, I think, in the USA. If if you have money, it's because you worked hard and you you had money. And so it's it's actually it's uh, you know, a lot of people here. Their parents were immigrants in the, the 60s or 70s, and they've really kind of pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. And they were given the opportunity to to do that. I think in the UK there is still a bit of a class system. I actually do remember this. I only just remembered this. I had a colleague. Um, his parents. One was a lawyer. One was a doctor. And we were having a conversation one day and. Uh, I remember him saying to me, and I don't think he was trying to be mean, but he said, doesn't matter how much money you earn, Katie, you'll never be in my class. Wow. Yeah. I think he was just joking, to be honest. But it, it that, that thought just came back into my head that the, that was what he said. And um, and yeah, and he went to a, a private high school and so on. But I still joked with him that it uh, doesn't matter what private high school he went to. He was still only able to go to the same type of university that I went to because it's all about the grades in the in the UK. Whereas in the US, it really the education system really is about, you know, if, you're, if your parents can afford it, you will go to the good schools. If your parents can't afford it, you have to work hard for a scholarship. You're competing against other people for a scholarship. And there are very few that get to go to a prestigious university. And those prestigious universities lead to you, again, having a, a peer group that will help you get jobs in the future um, and so on. Yeah, it's interesting because I've also worked a fair amount in the US. I haven't lived there, uh, but I am married to an American man. So it also <laughs> helps um, in terms of um, the uh, uh, sometimes I get him just to read an email just to understand what the person is really saying. I find those cultural <laughs> um, differences are quite uh, extreme sometimes. So it took me a yeah. while to get used to that. But um, certainly uh, I can totally relate to people just thinking that you're from, you know, not recognising that your accent is anything but super posh and upper class just because it's British, which is, yeah. is quite enjoyable sometimes. <laughs> We're not, you know, no, not being questioned at all. So, so yeah, that's that's fascinating. So, so just thinking about all of your experiences, what do you think? So, my my hope is that uh, lots of different people in our industry might listen to this podcast, and I suppose it'd be interesting what everyone maybe could learn based on your experiences. What do you think could have or would have been helpful to you personally in your career? Yeah, I think that I think maybe we need uh, as an industry, we need to reach out to future employees much, much earlier. So maybe in the high school, maybe in the universities that we start to reach out to them early to let them know that there are careers available in this really innovative and really fascinating industry where their background and their experiences are incredibly important. And this doesn't just go for, for you know, low income families like I grew up in. But of course, in, in, in the US, a lot of different ethnic backgrounds um, are much needed. Uh, people with disabilities are much needed in our industry. We are absolutely missing their voice. And I think just, you know, trying to hire them now is uh, potentially too late. We, we might need to kind of raise the, I guess, raise the, the market research voice uh, much earlier to let people know it is a career option and so on. And that we really need them in the room. We need to, to hear their voices. Absolutely. I think one thing that uh, career market research did for me that I couldn't have growing up is the ability to travel. So to go to focus groups, um, like I said, my first role allowed me to go to meetings in London, which was the first time I'd been to London. Um, and I did focus groups in Leeds and in Bristol. And I'd never been to those cities either. And it's a, it's a really great way to, to explore the world that 
that maybe isn't wasn't afforded to those people when they were growing up. Yeah, I totally agree. And how do you think we're doing? What's your sort of temperature gauge on this issue? Are the people talking about not obviously, you know, with what's going on in the US at mm-hmm. the moment, you know, globally, I feel like ethnicity yeah. is is massively being pushed up the agenda in a much more explicit, universal way overall. And I'd be interested to hear not just these recent events, but, you know, generally how you feel, what's going on? Where, where do you think we are? Yeah, um, I think the events of, of the last two weeks have really led me to examine, you know, is there anything that our industry does on a daily basis or is there anything that we that we don't do right now? And I had to kind of have, have a very frank thought, I guess, conversation with myself around it. And I honestly don't I don't think we're doing very well right now, to be honest. As we've mentioned, I think the, the people writing surveys, the people designing market research projects and choosing methodologies are quite homogenized, mostly Caucasian, mostly middle income. And uh, I was thinking about this, obviously, I work in sample and thinking about sample and almost every day I have to say to a client, oh, I'm really sorry we can't reach that ethnic group or I'm really sorry we don't have the numbers needed to hit enough African-Americans in this project or could you please relax the ethnicity quotas because we can't quite reach it, it's really hard. And I think we've gotten away with saying it's really hard to find those audiences online for a long time. And I think now it's now's the time to say, okay, we know it's really hard. So let's go and do it. Let's do that hard work. Let's find those publishers that will enable us to build panels with different with people of different uh, ethnicities and different backgrounds. We've got to do the hard work. And I think when it comes to methodology, obviously, online market research has made it very, very fast and easy to get quick survey data back. But maybe online isn't always the best way. You're not going to reach certain low-income families if you are only doing online surveys as your methodology. And yes, it's more expensive to do telephone or face-to-face, but that doesn't matter. If it's more expensive, we've got to do it. We've got to have these voices in the room represented in sample. And it doesn't matter if it takes longer. It doesn't matter if it it's costs more money. We have to do the hard work. Where we are right now, I don't think we're in a great position. And uh, I raised this with the SampleCon board just this week. And I know that we're going to have a conversation around sampling and how we've just got to put the hard work in to, to really find those diverse audiences um, online because we just don't do a good enough job of it right now. And how receptive do you feel people generally are, are going to be? I'm hoping um, that we're not just going to pay lip service to it. I'm hoping that it's not just a conversation we have and it come and then it comes back to it's just really hard. <laughs> uh, but I also think it needs to come all the way along the line, right? The, the sample companies aren't going to build those audiences if people aren't going to buy those audiences. The brands need to understand that they have to have those audiences and the brands need to understand that maybe it will cost them more money to find those audiences. And I think they're going to have to start to recognize why it's important to have those voices in the room and that therefore that project might take longer and it might cost them more. Um, So we need it. It needs to be both sides of the industry, really. If we build it and the revenue isn't there, it's going to dwindle. But then again, it's a, it's, I feel like it's a vicious circle right now. The brands come to us sometimes asking for ethnicity quotas that we can't meet. And likewise, we don't build it because we're not asked very often. So I think all sides of the industry need to, to work together. And so what advice would you give to somebody with a similar background to you starting their career in market research today? Seek out a mentor, a career mentor, not just your manager. I think I followed, I guess, having, I guess, a, a, a father that was in the Navy. I really kind of followed my chain of command and uh, only really spoke to my own manager. But, you know, seek out a mentor, whether that's somebody else in another department in the company you work for, whether it's somebody else in the industry, do not be shy in reaching out to them. Some of them might be too busy and they might say no, um, and that's OK. Just keep reaching out, find yourself uh, an ally and, uh, and allow yourself the ambition 
allow yourself to be ambitious. You know, shoot. I hate saying it, but kind of shoot for the stars because you really can get there and uh, get curious. You know, some specifics on market research in, in general, it's moving not moving away, but it's 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 far less than just the methodology now. There's a lot of technology involved, APIs, routers. There's a significant amount of financial data that now goes into the way the sampling is done. So I've had to do a lot of kind of YouTube exploring and uh, talking to my younger colleagues actually about the ones that did, you know, engineering at university, or computer science at university, and learn from those younger ones as well. So always be exploring. You know, market researchers tend to be naturally curious and there are hundreds of books and youtube videos and and podcasts to, to, to keep you up to date with uh, with the different technologies in market research great i have two last questions for you so so the first one really is what are your hopes for the future of the industry i guess twofold on the sample side i really think it is time that our supply teams and that our sample teams start to really do the hard work to find those diverse voices and audiences online. You know, recruiting a panel one way with one incentive or one, you know, recruitment methodology is probably the reason why we only end up with one type of person. So we've really got to to look at that. So I'm hoping that sampling, and I'm certainly putting, uh, you know, my my foot forward um, with SampleCon to to try and and work on that and to do that. And I'm I'm really hoping that does change. Um, And I'm really hoping that brands start to recognise that they are, you know, they're potentially they're missing revenue opportunities really by not speaking to these audiences if they want to view it as a dollar <laughs> sign. Yeah, agreed. Which people do in business, right? There's no getting away from that. And I think, yeah, the business case is there. Yeah, like I said, mascarpone on toast is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> Great catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I think the brands need to start understanding that they're missing revenue. They're really missing revenue opportunities by not not putting their brands in the right stores or in the right mediums where where these audiences can be found to purchase um, or to advertise to them. I also think and I'm really hoping that we we start to talk to the universities and the, and the high schools around market research as a career or or market research technology or mr tech um just as something to to promote it better to the younger audiences who who might not think it's you know a viable career or or don't necessarily know they don't have any examples of of people who've been able to carve a really amazing and fruitful career in market research perfect those are those are great hopes so i'm with you i hope um i hope those things can can happen in the near, near future and i think everyone in the whole industry um would benefit from, from those those hopes being realised. Okay, so finally, I've asked every guest to think of a song that that you would choose to sort of encapsulate your experience of a career in market research. So it'd be great to hear if you've if you've chosen one and what you've chosen and why you chose that song. I'm just trying to think of the song that would be travel related because uh, I think what what the market research career has afforded me is the ability to move to London, to Chicago, to New York. So I guess it would be a, a travel related song. And it's given me, you know what, actually, it, the industry's given me so many highs. And so I think Walking on Sunshine. Great. I love the positivity of that song choice. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Katie. Really appreciate your time. And I appreciate you sharing your stories. Thank you.
Thank you for listening and join me next week when I'll be talking to Theo Francis, owner of Guinea Pig Fieldwork and co-founder of The Colour of Research.